Hello, Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. Today on the show, Margaret Wappler visits the studio to talk about her new novel, Neon Green. We'll discuss the Hulk Hogan lawsuit against Gawker, which was adjudicated two months ago. Why are we talking about it now? Because it was funded by the eccentric venture capitalist Peter Thiel, who will be addressing the Republican convention this very evening, if you're listening on Thursday, the day the show is being broadcast. Joining me are my usual co-hosts, Lori and Tom. Hello, guys. Hey, Seth. Lori, tell me something I don't know. I can't stand to look at or hear Dennis Leary. Good one. Are you not a fan of his sex, drugs, and rock and roll on FX? I I don't know because I can't possibly watch it. Lori doesn't like Dennis Leary. Newsflash. Tom, tell me something I don't know. Some babies are really tiny. For example? For example, we just visited a friend who had a little baby. It's so tiny. And it made me think about, you know, Jacques Lacan, the French psychoanalyst, talks about the fact that, that the human... Human problems, a lot of them are related to what he calls the specific immaturity of the of the human infant. I'm sorry, I thought I said, "Tell me something I don't know." Oh, okay. <laughs> I think sorry. I think we should do the show right now. All right. The wrestler Hulk Hogan won a massive lawsuit against Gawker Media nearly two months ago. It was, uh, I believe, a hundred and forty million dollar. Settlement. It was revealed that the suit had been funded by the venture capitalist billionaire Peter Thiel, who will be speaking at the GOP convention tonight. He is a libertarian. He has funded many anti-progressive causes. He's a very controversial guy. He's also on the board of Facebook, which gives him a certain amount of direct power in the culture. Lori, what do you think of Gawker Media? Why don't we start there? Well, I read it pretty much every day. Um, why? Because I, I asked myself that question, why, when Lena Dunham and her uh, and Adam Driver had an argument about Gawker on the, on the show Girls, and he's like, why do you read that nasty bullshit? And I think their, their motto is, today's gossip is tomorrow's news. And I, I think there is something in that. I think a lot of the stories that they pick up on, they, they do have good radar about what's going to be tomorrow's headline. And I find it entertaining. Well, they're snarky. They'll throw anyone under the bus, both of which are qualities we all admire at certain times, I think. But let me ask you, Tom, the Hulk Hogan sex tape, in which I should say for our listeners, consisted of Hulk Hogan receiving oral sex from the wife of his friend Bubba the Love Sponge. Wait. I could I could barely get that sentence out <laughs> while while Bubba was seen in in the background walking around with a drinks tray. This sounds like comedy I wrote this morning to perform on the show, but this is actually true. So now what I would like you to tell me is whether or not there was anything newsworthy there that perhaps justified Gawker's decision to hit send and publish the Hulk Hogan sex tape. Yeah, you know, I know that I was supposed to watch the tape to get ready for the show, and I just didn't. Uh, so I, I can't really speak directly to the tape. I do think that, you know, Lori does like that the, that kind of snark. I would just like to parenthetically I say I read a description 
of the tape because oh, I know you. Okay. okay, well, you tell. You, well, well I, I did actually just then. I didn't want you to think that I hunted down the tape <laughs> and, and found it. It's okay, it Seth. In, if you do, it's no, fine. Other, other not, tapes, but not the, not the Hulk Hogan tape. But Seth, I also didn't see it. But I read, and tell me if this is what you read, that in, he, there's a racist rant in, in yes. the tape. Is that correct? And that's really what he wanted to suppress. That's what Hulk Hogan wanted to suppress. Right. But Peter Thiel wanted to destroy Gawker. Now, we should right. say also, the reason Peter Thiel wanted to go after Gawker was in 2007, Peter Thiel, who is gay, was outed by Gawker. And he did not like that for the reason that he claims that because of his position in the world financial community, he thought it would put him in a difficult position going to investors who did not look kindly hello, Saudi Arabia, on homosexuality. Right. And Gawker's argument is that he is a public figure. He runs a public company. He makes a gazillion dollars. And he's... Therefore, he's not protected in the same way that a... Right. A and and I think there's a similarity to the Hulk Hogan thing in that what he claimed to be outraged by was not necessarily the thing he was actually outraged by. He claimed to be outraged by being outed. He may have been, you know, but apparently everyone in his circle knew but he doesn't want anyone to have the right to, he's like Donald Trump this way, to take pot shots at him. And he is willing to try to shut down the whole friggin' thing. In other words, he doesn't want the First Amendment to be actually part of our cultural fabric. So he has forced Gawker into Chapter 11, where they are right now. And Tom, what are we looking at culturally as a result of this decision, as a result of the precedent this judge is setting? I think it's all related to the basic incivility that's part of our, our general culture today. I was just re reading something this morning about Leslie Jones um, leaving Twitter because she's just getting this because of this racist. Nasty, and would you say she's the Saturday Night Live actress who was in the new Ghostbusters? Exactly. She's just announced that that's it. I'm, uh, you know, I'm leaving Twitter. I, I am not going to subject myself to this kind of horrific racist and sexist claptrap. And if we let the culture go on like this forever, you know, letting incivility reign, it may be that we end up with a, with a uh, social media that's completely billionaires and bros, right? It's just Trumpism, triumphant. I think we can all agree that other than LARB, the internet is a sewer. Absolutely. <laughs> is, that accurate? is that an accurate yeah. assessment? That's what the New Yorker said about us. So, uh, so <laughs> let, me, let me put this out for discussion then. I, I, I cannot stand the incivility. It's grotesque. I... Whenever I go to a comments thread, by the third comment, I'm, I'm running screaming from the computer. But which is worse, that or the fact that Peter Thiel can force Gawker into bankruptcy? I mean, the Peter Thiel thing, I think, is so clearly worse. Incivility is one of the costs of free speech. I mean, yeah, you just absolutely. have to be tough-skinned, you know? Absolutely. It kind of feels a little silly to be saying, I cannot put up with this incivility uh, in my well, culture. Well, you know, when I, I was a, a theater critic, because people take that really personally because it's such a handmade art, I used to get um, letters that uh, were amazingly hostile, and I, I actually thought they were funny i don't think they got to me really but but things like you know you sh i hope you get cancer and die and my wife has more talent in her little finger than you'll have ever in your entire life and um just you, <laughs> you know did, it's just, you did enjoy those <laughs> i did and and uh i don't know there's something about people losing their shit that's funny and revealing so trump of course has really made great strides in the coarsening of the culture i think we can all 
laud him for his accomplishments in dragging well us done, Mr. Trump. deeper into the mud and a tip of the hat to him for that. He, however, has a remarkably thin skin and something that he has said he will do if elected is tighten the libel laws. In other words, he wants to create a media landscape where Gawker wouldn't even think of publishing the something like the Hulk Hogan tape or perhaps even something way less offensive than that because they'll be vulnerable to getting taken down in court. I just have two words to say. Berlin, 1933. What do you guys think Teal is going to talk about tonight at the convention? Where he uh, is I'm one sure of it'll the... be mesmerizing and brilliant. I, I'm, I think he seems like a just a really good thinker. I think it'll be against gay marriage. I'm actually looking forward to it because he's a, he's a very compelling guy in, ter- in terms of what he's gotten himself into. He's very much an Ayn Rand kind of character. He's trying to live forever. He's funding mm-hmm. something called the Methuselah Project. He believes he can extend his own lifespan by, God knows, I mean, decades and decades. He's funding a project called Seasteading, which uh, seasteads are islands beyond the limit that exists where no laws exist, so billionaires can essentially create their own mm. environments. He's he's a libertarian wet dream. I can't wait to hear what he has to say. <laughs> Didn't Michael Tolkien write about that in The Return of the Player, about these islands that the billionaires yeah. take over and that there's no laws for them? Well, that's the beauty of fiction. The worst aspects of it eventually become true. As, as editors at LARB, how do you two read the Gawker case? Well, I mean, we have been, uh, we have gotten cease and desist um, things from from rich corporations and we've, you know, we've had to respond to them with lawyers and it's, it, when those things happen, it's scary um, because oh. you realize, well, okay, well they, if they really wanted to, they could just put us out of business real fast. We have lawyers on our board that have taken care of it for us for, for free and therefore we're still alive. And but luckily the, the it, law is in our favor at the, the moment, yeah, but helps. the minute you start to publish, you're in the first amendment business. There's, you can't avoid it. You're going to get sued, uh, you know, within the first two weeks, it's just going to happen. So we're in we're in a deeply populist moment, both on on the right and the left. And what I want to ask you guys is, to me, the the Teal lawsuit is a lot to do with capitalism completely out of control. And can capitalism be saved before it destroys itself? Well, you know, that's to me the the question is. There's part of the human race that seems to be evolving so well and so so nicely, you know, rights for animals and try try to save the environment and it's just getting better and better. And then there's and then we're destroying ourselves. And it does seem to be a race between which side is going to win. And this week at during the Republican convention, I don't not feeling particularly optimistic, but usually I I am optimistic. What about you, Tom? Well I I do know that, you know, we we monitor our our comment threads on LARB. And one of the things that, that, um, we've managed to do by monitoring them fairly closely and, and, and getting rid of the trolls is that we end up with a fairly civil conversation in most of the pieces that we have. We had one on, on pit bulls, a piece on pit bulls. And that just was like, there was an unending stream of people yelling at each other on that. And, uh, and we just took out the worst of them and it stopped. Oh, the, we had a bad thread on Judith Freeman's Mormon piece about growing up Mormon, um, because the Mormons uh, are very organized and they they troll for any mention of Mormon and then they besiege you with obviously pre-written comments. Yeah. That happened. 
And that's a very interesting fact, right? I mean, the, the, other, the other kind of organized trolling is the NRA. The NRA just sends its attack trolls out uh, every time you do a, a gun control piece. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, it's not just uh, democracy at work. It's well, Scientology lobbying. used to do that and still does to some still degree. Does. But a real journalist, I have to say, I think will we'll go, f well, that will make them want to publish the story more. And that is, that's how you know if you're a real journalist or not, if that's your instinct to, to, to go ahead and publish like a dare. Yeah. Well, this is going to surprise the both of you, but I got an instant message while we were doing this segment that Peter Thiel has just purchased LARB. <laughs> uh, he's well, handsome, very well, handsome. And, and that's I like the beginning him. of the end of his empire. <laughs> and we'll be following that story. We have figured out how to destroy this man. <laughs> My name is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 KPFK-FM. And now let's go back to the show. Margaret Wappler is a fixture on the Los Angeles journalism scene. She was a reporter for the LA Times. She has written for many, many publications you have heard of. Neon Green is her first novel. Margaret, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So your book, which I thoroughly enjoyed, is a genre-bending work set in an American town in and this surprised me, the 1990s. Mm -hmm. Now, my children were born in 1991 and 1993, so what I'm telling you is I missed the 90s entirely. Oh, I'm sorry. Why did you want to write about the 90s? Well, I wanted to have a time that I knew I could paint very warmly because of the spaceship contraption that's in the book. Um, I wanted to have something pushing against it that was really warm and familiar and nostalgic. And before we go any further, when you say the spaceship contraption in the book, briefly say what the book is about. And I, and I guess we can say it's not a spoiler um, because it, no. it shows no. up fairly it's early. It's very in the early. Yeah. yeah, and it's on the cover of the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's um, also a clue. But for really dense people, it might be a spoiler. Sure. Yeah. So basically, a spaceship lands in the backyard of the suburban American family, um, a suburb outside of Chicago named Prairie Park. And uh, the spaceship is somewhat normal in this world. Basically, 10 years ago, Reagan made connections with a certain tribe in Jupiter, and they started coming over strictly to the United States. Um, because we get everything. And uh, they come to this particular house because Gabe, the teenage son, uh, enrolls in the sweepstakes and they win. I liked the 90s setting because you can't look up things on your iPhone. Yeah. So that I think that's a help to a novelist. Oh, big time. I also really wanted to preserve the mystery all the time of the spaceship that they could never get that much information. And I do think that the spaceship, or sorry, the internet sort of spoils that. Mm -hmm. Like we yeah. can find out the bottom of everything pretty quickly. Right, exactly, yeah. It's also the classic drop in American literature, right? I mean, let's say Willa Cather. Mm -hmm. Her novels are all set 20 years earlier than when she's writing mm. them. William Dean Howells is often writing about 20 years earlier. Henry James is often writing about 20 years earlier. Dreiser. Edith Wharton. It's a really standard American literary 
place to, to sit It does seem sewing. like you get enough distance at 20 years to really be able to evaluate it. Although, I don't know, like the other day I was trying to think of how I would describe 2005 to someone. And it's, it's muddy still. Like, I'm still mm-hmm. too close mm. to it. Mm-hmm. And no one's writing about the 90s. Right. That I, that I can think of. I haven't read a, a book that wasn't written in the 90s, set in the 90s, actually. And as, as you said, Tom, we're looking, we go looking back at mm. in 20-year intervals. I remember being in school in the 70s when the 50s revival was happening. Shanana. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you see some of the characters in the book discussing the internet as this very distant, far-off thing that they've heard a little, little bit about, but nobody is immersed in it. And certainly none of them could imagine our lives now of being hooked up to these iPhones and, you know, having five different social media accounts that we lose our passwords to and so forth and so on. Now, I said in the introduction that the book, at least I think I did, was was genre-bending. And what I'm wondering is, this is a bit of a spoiler alert, so if you don't want to know what happens, speed ahead. You use the aliens. When I hear something's got aliens in it and a, and a flying saucer in the backyard, I'm, I'm expecting a certain thing. And you completely subvert those expectations. Mm-hmm. Is, is that a spoiler alert? The subversion of expectations? I think it's okay. I think not. I think it is, and, by, de- by definition. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> <Whoops>. <laughs> Forgive me. The, the book is good. You should read it. Never mind that, that spoiler alert. And I'm wondering, are you, are you a science fiction fan? Because the book did not read to me like science fiction. There was a spaceship in the backyard, and there was a family drama. Yeah. I mean, basically, I have read certain texts that I feel like also straddle the line. I mean, I'm a big fan of Margaret Atwood, and I would say speculative fiction mm-hmm. has informed me much more than really hardcore classic science fiction. But that said, you know, books like 1984 and uh, Ursula Le Guin, a lot of those books really made an impact on me as a child. And the thing I love about science fiction that I wanted to borrow so much for this book is that I do think it is a way to crack open a certain philosophical concern. The book I was reading right before I read Neon Green was White Noise by Don DeLillo. And I was struck by the similarities because it's also about a family, uh, a nuclear family that is affected in a deep way by a, a bizarre scientific event that's occurring around them. And I wanted to ask you, were you influenced by DeLillo? Is he somebody who you've paid a lot of attention to? Have you read White Noise? Oh, absolutely. That was a seminal text for me for this book. Like, I, in the beginning of the first draft or two of writing Neon Green, I was so enamored with that book and what it did that drafts later when I would look back on it, I'd be like, oh my God, this is such a DeLillo ripoff. I would have to like change things. <laughs> I've got to get rid of the Hitler studies guy. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> so you're, you're a, a journalist. You've been doing that for a while and journalism requires a certain degree of emotional objectivity. Yet Neon Green is a deeply emotional book. It's got a real hot magma thing going on emotionally at the at the core, I would love it if you would talk about navigating the transition from writing journalism, you know, your day gig, to doing this kind of fiction writing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love how you describe that. Um, you know, basically, I was at the LA Times, um, you know, 10 to 6 or 7 or maybe later every day. And it was my job to write these uh, dispassionate reports from the world of pop culture. And even when I was critically engaged in something like myself and my emotions had to be pretty removed. And 
you know, there's a certain kind of dryness that I can enjoy about that work, but I would say that I would just go run off to neon green, run it to its arms and be able to just like let it all rip open, you know, let all those emotions really spill out. And I wanted to write. I mean, one thing about white noise that I thought about is that as much as I love it, there's sort of a coolness to it. And I didn't want that. I wanted the opposite. I wanted to be really warm and really emotional. Um, So, yeah, absolutely. I, I built that book as as a respite from journalism. So were you always a secret novelist? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I went to Columbia College's fiction writing program as an undergrad, and then I went to CalArts for MFA program. And all along, I was writing uh, short stories and attempting novels. And I was also doing journalism. Like, I, I love journalism. It'll always be part of my practice. But I knew that I would write a novel eventually. Mm-hmm. Me too. Me too. From the time I was, you know, 18. Yeah. I knew I'd write it. It only took me 45 years. Well, so. I mean, I'm 40. Yeah. So. I, I thought I'm, I was saying this to we're, we're fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was saying this to um, Brad Listy when I did his podcast, but he, I was saying like when I was 25, I was like depressed that I hadn't written it yet. Which I'll never be seems. the youngest great novelist. Right, yes, exactly. Right, right. Oh, well, cross that off. <laughs> one, one thing I really liked about the book in a, in a meta kind of way, and this also is a spoiler alert of sorts, so fast forward, is that right at this moment in time, I think the, the book is saying it's not the other, it's not the alien that's frightening, that's her enemy. You know, it's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, I mean, I assume that was... Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and I think for this political moment... It's kind of great. Yeah. It's Pogo, right? We've met the enemy and he, and he is us. Yeah. I mean, basically, a lot of people have asked, you know, why name the family the Allen family? And it is a purposeful, almost alien, like the same word almost, just mm-hmm. one letter shifted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted that play, you know, that kind of closeness where they could be the aliens, they could be the outsiders, any of us could be an outsiders. And some of that's about the way I think of families, which I think all families are inherently weird. And, you know, these units of function or dysfunction, and they're highly um, idiosyncratic, obviously. Um but, you know, as also as far as the enemy being us kind of thing, I really thought a lot about um, the fact that when, when I was working on this book, there was this real and still is a real political movement of denying uh, climate change. Like this isn't real. This doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And um, there's almost a religious parallel to me about that, that like we also don't know if God exists. We can never prove that. And it was interesting to me that a lot of the people that were denying climate change also happened to be part of the religious right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that basically I wanted to work <laughs> with that. I've never heard anybody make that connection before. Yeah. That's really interesting. Oh, right? thanks. Yeah. yeah. I mean, basically, like, I wanted to make that connection of like, okay, when we can't see the enemy, who do we assume the enemy is? And I think mm-hmm. it's usually the, the outsider. So you're a podcaster as well. I am. That's right. You do a podcast called Pop Rocket? Yes. And that is for our listeners who might want to check it out? It's a pop culture roundtable. It's from Maximum Fun, which is Jesse Thorne's network. And it's myself, the comedian Guy Branham, Oliver Wang, and Winter Mitchell. It's it's super fun. How long have you guys been doing that? Uh, We just had our 75th 
episode, like about five, four or five episodes ago. So how do you think we're doing? <laughs> well, I saw you guys are <laughs> at like 53 or something, right? <laughs> we are. Uh, yeah, we're, we've yeah, got quite like a few that. of them. Yeah. So you're no longer at the Times. No. And how long, how long were you there? I was there from 2005 to 2012. So what was your experience at the paper? It was amazing in many ways, a huge growth experience, and then also frustrating because of the overarching moment where we are with media in general. And when I was there, you know, starting in 2005, God, that sounds so long ago. Yeah. Um, you know, there was still at that point, like, do we really need to have everything online? Mm. Like, can't people pick up the newspaper to get everything? And there was this klutzy period where we were putting like these super long links at the end of every story in the newspaper so right, that people right. would actually go and type that in at their computer <laughs> and go to that web story. And, you know, I saw a lot of what it means for a big organization like that to embrace something uh, just monumental mm. crashing towards them. And an alien. Yeah, yeah an it? alien. <laughs> What's the biggest lesson you're taking from having gotten neon green out of oh. the way? In some ways, there's so many that I can't pick just one. Top three. I think that I was very suspicious of planning and what I thought was a very fuddy-duddy way when writing neon green. Like, I didn't ever want, like, to write a hardcore outline. I mean, I took notes, copious notes all along, and I always was sort of outlining a few steps ahead of me. Um, but I think I backed myself into some corners and I had to, like, change things in a way that it was just difficult. And I want to try to head off some of that at the pass. I mean, it's the kind of thing, though, it's easier said than done and you don't really know. I mean, I really think about that quote um, from E.L. Doctorow about writing a novel is driving through the fog where you just have your fog lights on and that's all you get. You just get the road ahead of you. Mm. So you learn nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Every time I'm starting a new book, I say to myself, how did I do this? Right. It's a complete mystery. Yeah. Really. Yeah. I think you can learn things and then they just do you no good when you're faced with page one mm -hmm. again. But that's not true for screenplays. It's not true for screenplays at all because screenplays are you're building a cabinet to a certain degree, whereas novel writing can be much more amorphous and there are way fewer rules. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm. we were, I, we were uh, screenwriters briefly, Laurie and I, and um, we had a friend who was was our mentor and he said something about the outline and I said, hey, you know, I don't really like that. Yeah. And he said, oh yeah, I, I, I used to not like to outline until I wanted to make a living. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't that like to know too much. So it's that fine balance mm -hmm. of like giving yourself the tap, you know, laying it out clearly, but preserving that mystery. The book is Neon Green. Margaret Wampler, thanks for coming on the LARB Radio Hour. Thanks so much. It was such a great pleasure. And thanks for keeping the mystery alive for us. <laughs> Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks to Margaret Wampler. Thanks to Alan Minsky. Thanks to our crack production assistant, Ernesto Orleano. Thanks to the czar of scheduling, Mary Alexa Kavanaugh. Thanks to associate producer, Jim Lane. Thanks to our editor, Gabe Greenland. Thanks to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful studio. Find us on the web at Lori, where on the web? Wait, did you say Greenland? I did. 
Uh, is there some nepotism going on there? I have never seen that young man before. Oh, yeah, looks like you. Huh. Find us on the web at www.lareviewofbooks.org. Download us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. Follow us on Twitter. Tom, what's your Twitter handle and why do you never use it? <laughs> Tiny babies. <laughs> Laura, you use Twitter though. Mine's babies are dumb. No, it's not. What's your Twitter handle? <laughs> it's just my name. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week.